Well, as you are getting ready to listen to God's Word, I want to encourage you to make sure that it's open in front of you. So if you have your Bible there, open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to dive back into Romans chapter 8 and pick up where we left off. And we're going to look specifically this morning at verses 17 and 18. There's kind of a a transition taking place in the middle of Romans 8 here that's important to pick up on. But I want to remind you about how we started this section in Romans chapter 8 a number of weeks ago now. We've entitled this kind of section in Romans 8, Gospel Security. And when I started off this little mini-series in Romans 8, I mentioned that there were two realities that tend to cause us to question our eternal security, whether or not we can feel or believe we are safe because of the gospel, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the first reality that I mentioned was the reality of sin. Sin can often cause us to question our eternal security. It forces us to look at our lives and to examine our lives. And oftentimes we can get ourselves to this place, if we're not careful, of asking, am I really God's child? Look at the sin of my life. Look at how I still struggle with sin. Am I really God's child? Because if I was God's child, then I I wouldn't struggle with sin. That's, That's one way we can think wrongly about our lives even as Christians. Paul has addressed this already in Romans chapter 8 in the first section all the way up to verse 15. He's been reminding us that if we're truly in Christ, we're going to have this battle against sin. But one of the things we will see is increasing victory. He's reminded us that because of the gospel, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's reminded us that the Spirit of God has set us free from our bondage to sin and has now empowered us to live lives no longer walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the Spirit. And in that victory and in the presence of the Spirit of God, he's reminded us that we enjoy an unprecedented and unparalleled intimacy with God and access to God. So much so that he he left off where we left off in Romans 8.15, telling us that the Spirit of God actually causes us to cry out from the very depths of our soul, Abba, Father. That the Spirit of God actually bears witness and testifies to our own spirit that we are indeed children of God. You see, Romans 8 is intended to drive this theme of gospel security deep into our hearts. And as we pick up in verse 15, I I want you to notice in 16 how Paul says this. Look at verse 16, and let's read through verse 18. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the present The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now what he does here is fascinating. He's given us, as we've just rehearsed, all of these incredible blessings and truths about the Christian life. How the Spirit of God ministers to our hearts, causes our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father, testifies to the fact that we're children of God. And then he just drops this bomb on us right in the middle. 
And he says to us, all of this is yours provided or if you suffer. He, he kind of, he shifts gears here without using the clutch, or at least that way, that's the way it feels. It feels so abrupt. And yet what we need to see is that these things actually tie together so perfectly, so beautifully. You see, the first kind of reality that tends to cause us to question our eternal security is sin. But I want you to see what he does here is he shows us that the second reality that causes us to question our eternal security is this, suffering. Suffering. When we go through suffering, we can have the propensity to ask the question, not just am I saved, but am I really God's? Like, if I'm really God's child, if God is really a loving Heavenly Father, why would he allow me to go through this kind of pain? What kind of a father would allow his child to suffer the way that I am suffering? You see, we can be tempted to believe that God doesn't love us in the midst of our suffering. In fact, this is the very logic or reasoning of what's called the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The idea that, that all God wants for his children is to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. The logic of the prosperity gospel goes something like this. You're a child of the king. Your heavenly father is a good and gracious heavenly father. Therefore, you should never suffer. Children of the king don't suffer. In this one passage, it just obliterates that kind of theology and that kind of thinking in the Christian life. Here, we are told that the logic of the gospel is the exact opposite. You are a child of the king and heirs. And if you are a child of the king and heirs with Christ, you will suffer with him. And you see, instead of robbing us of our security, Paul intends us to understand that suffering actually reaffirms our security. It doesn't prove that we're not God's children. It proves that we are God's children. And I hope that that is a healing bomb to some of your souls this morning because I know that as, as some of you are watching this or listening to this right now, I know some of you are going through immense pain and suffering. And I know that that's provoking a lot of questions in your own mind about your relationship with God. And I hope that what you see this morning is that if you are a Christian, if you're truly in Christ, that the suffering you're experiencing is not an evidence that God doesn't love you. It's an evidence that he does. You see, the end destination of future glory is found only on the path of present suffering. And Paul helps us grasp this in these two single verses by telling us that suffering and glory are first inevitable for believers. Suffering and glory are inevitable for believers. They're unavoidable. First, let's just consider suffering. Suffering is inevitable, not just for believers, by the way, but suffering is inevitable for all people. You say, why? Why, why is that? Well, the simple answer is because sin. Some people really wrestle with this idea of suffering, and they wrestle with this concept at a, at a theological or a philosophical level. But if you understand sin, the surprise isn't that we suffer. The surprise is that we're still alive in the first place. We need to be reminded that suffering is a fundamental reality for all of humanity because sin is the fundamental nature of all humanity. 
Paul has already addressed this in Romans chapter 5. All suffering, in other words, is the result of sin. When sin infected the world and broke God's good world, sin became the dominating influence, and its result has been chaos and destruction and suffering from age to age. It's unavoidable in this life. Now, some suffering is the result of direct sin, We know this. We look around us and we see the the evidences of direct sin. We see war and murder and theft, and we see suffering that's caused by, by, by hatred and animosity towards one another. Some is also the result of indirect sin, though. We look around this world and we see evidences of sin through natural disasters, tornadoes and earthquakes and mudslides and and tsunamis and all different kinds. Through famines and plagues, we see the evidence that, that sin has indeed infected and cursed this world. This includes all forms of ordinary suffering that we experience. In this world, we are going to experience massive suffering because this world is broken by sin. By the way, the remainder of Romans 8 is going to tell us that. It's going to tell us that by telling us how how this world, it groans, it aches. There's a longing and a waiting for it to be restored and recreated, for it to be made right. It encompasses many kinds of suffering. Physical suffering. The aches and the pains, the things that are debilitating, the things that are life-threatening. It covers the emotional suffering, the relational suffering, the economic suffering and poverty and hardships. You see, all suffering in this world demonstrates to us the presence of sin and evil. But you see, both of these are intended by God to be a wake-up call for humanity. For every single human being, the presence of sin, the presence of evil are intended to wake us up to the reality of who we are and what we desperately need. Pain and suffering are constant reminders that all is not well in this world. It's a reminder of our fallen nature and therefore our need of rescue from sin. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, Jesus actually addresses all suffering, and he kind, of, he kind of approaches it from two angles. He talks about this kind of direct suffering as a result of sin, and he talks about how there are some who think that, that all of their suffering is a result specifically of their individual sin, and then he looks at the tragedy of a, a tower that had collapsed and killed 18 people and asks the question, was their sin somehow greater than, than the sin of others? And his answer is simply, no, you misunderstand the nature of suffering. All suffering leads leads us to our understanding of sin and reminds us, listen, that unless we repent, we will perish and die in our sin. You see, if we don't see suffering here and now as pointing to our need for a Savior, here's what will happen. We will suffer worse for eternity. But here in verse 17, while Paul is referring to sin and suffering broadly, he's actually also referring to suffering in a more specific and intentional sense. He is certainly referring to the idea that there is a suffering that is directly linked to following Jesus Christ, to being in Christ, to being a Christian. There's a kind of suffering that Christians will experience in this life 
that is foreign to those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Persecution, oppression because of our religious beliefs and convictions. These things are inevitable according to the Scriptures. And whether it comes in the form of of mere verbal abuse at one extreme or as martyrdom at the other, the Scriptures teach that not one of us is exempt from paying a price for our faith in Jesus. So when we suffer mockery or scorn or ridicule, or any other form of persecution because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, we can take that affliction as divine evidence or proof that we truly belong to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is indicating here. There is a specific suffering for Jesus, and there is a general suffering because of sin in this world, but both of those things are going to be inevitable for the believer. But I want you to see this as well. It's not just that sin is inevitable or suffering is inevitable for believers. Glory is also inevitable for believers. When Paul here speaks of glory, you notice what he says in verse 17. He says, and if if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, Paul speaks of this this new reality, this glorified reality. He's speaking of the future reality for all believers, that the final end of our salvation. You see, salvation can be in one sense um, dissected into different parts, but it needs to be understood as a whole. We are regenerated, we are justified, we are sanctified, and one day in our salvation we will be fully glorified. The presence of sin and suffering fully eradicated, never to be known or experienced again. We exist now in the realm. Remember Paul, he talks in Romans 8, or Romans, excuse me, about realms. He's constantly talking about the different realms. There is a sense in which what he's saying is we exist right now in the realm of suffering because this world is broken by sin, but there is another realm that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus, a realm of glorification where everything will be recreated, everything will be made new, everything will be stripped of the presence and power of sin. But right now, we don't live in that realm. That is the realm that's guaranteed for God's children who are also noticed heirs. When he speaks to us of being heirs, that's what he's reminding us of. You see, the Spirit of God testifies to our hearts that not only are we children of God, but we are therefore heirs. Our security lies in Christ, and the down payment of the Holy Spirit, who is our guarantee of our future inheritance. That's because we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we understand that Christ is our older brother. He is the eldest brother. He is the only natural-born, so to speak, child of God. All other children are adopted Because of Jesus Christ, we're adopted into God's family in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is the rightful heir. But here's the awesome truth of the gospel. If we are in Christ, we inherit all that he is and all that he has. 
You see, earthly inheritances, are, they're kind of divvied up by percentage. They're spread out. You know, you get a portion, and you get a portion, and maybe you get a larger portion. Maybe you're the favorite child, and, and maybe, kids, you can work really hard to get a better portion of the inheritance with your parents. But the reality is, in God's economy, there's no spreading up or divvying out the inheritance. You see, Hebrews 1 verse 2 tells us that Christ is the full heir of everything. He's the heir of all things. And if we are in him, we get all things in him. We get 100% of the inheritance because we get 100% of him. Every adopted child of God will receive the full inheritance with the Son. Everything that Christ receives by divine right, listen, we will receive by divine grace. Peter, when he describes this inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he describes, he tells us, listen, that this inheritance is, is not like silver and gold that, that perish and fade. No, we have an inheritance in heaven that is imperishable, undefiled. It's unfading and it's being kept preserved for us it's being guarded for us right now until the last day and it has a glory that's unmatched glory meaning it's perfection it's weight it's value it's unmatched there's nothing like it But it's likely, listen, that when Paul speaks of being heirs in our inheritance here, he has more than this in mind. And when he talks about our glorification, he's pointing us to a deeper reality. He's tapping into the Old Testament reality of inheritance. If you go back to the Old Testament and you read about how God divvied up the inheritance to his children, to the 12 tribes of Israel as they entered into the promised land, something sticks out in that. The priestly tribe of Levi was told that they would not get an inheritance in the land, but here's what they were told. Here's, they were told why. Because God himself would be their inheritance. They, as the priestly tribe, fulfilled a unique role in the land. They filled a unique role in the temple system where the presence of God dwelt among the people of God in a unique way. So while they didn't have a a plot of land to call their own, they had the very privilege of being entering into the presence of God on a regular basis. And in effect, they point us to what will one day be the reality for all the children of God. One day we will enter into the future promised land, but it will not be the land that really grips our hearts. It will be the very presence of God that we enjoy. We will get him as our inheritance. Jesus, in John 17, verse 24, will be on the screen. In his high priestly prayer, listen to what he prayed On our behalf, he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. One day God will be all in all. One day we will see him as he is and we will be transformed by what we see. That inheritance, that glory is the believers alone. But there is a qualification here at the end of verse 17. Did you see that? Suffering and glory aren't simply inevitable for the believer. They're secondly inseparable in salvation. He says, provided that you suffer, or if you suffer. 
And the idea here is that both suffering and glory for the believer, they're married in Scripture. There's a deep connection. You can't fully pull them apart here and now. Paul is declaring that that strange as it is and strange as it seems to our, our earthly and human minds, the present proof of the believer's ultimate glory comes through suffering on his Lord's behalf. You see, because we suffer with him, we know that we will also be glorified with him. The one naturally in, in, in the kind of redemption economy or logic, it, it bleeds into the other. You can't parse them. This is a promise, by the way. It's not, it's not a possibility. It's not, it's not like a, if you happen to suffer. The, the way this reads in the original, it, it's, it's not, pro, it's not a, a possibility. Excuse me, it's a promise. It's the reality for all those who are truly God's children. And this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. I mean, Acts 14.22 tells us that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We suffer for Christ. Let me give you a few examples of this and, and even some reasons why. In John 15, 18 through 19, listen to what Jesus said. He said this, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 2 Timothy 3.12. Right? Not, not a, a popular verse, not one that we like to highlight or, or, or put on a picture and stick it on our wall. But listen, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. Even Paul, who's writing this letter to the Romans, he, he was informed, or it was informed, that he would actually, according to Acts 9.16, that, that God, the Spirit of God, in rescuing Saul on the road to Damascus would show him how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. You know, it can be really hard to receive comfort or counsel from somebody who, who maybe hasn't walked a mile in our shoes, and we know this. Oftentimes, it's actually what we use to justify refusing counsel, you know, right? We just, hey, you don't, you, don't have, you don't know what I'm going through, okay? You don't have kids like I do or my stage of life, so you can't speak to these issues in my life, or you've never suffered abuse, and so therefore you can't speak to my situation. You don't know what I'm going through. And listen, that's usually an unjustified response. I get it. I understand it. It's usually not appropriate, but I want you to know this. If that's you going, like, how can you sit here and, and, and lecture me on suffering? First of all, let me say this. I can tell you what God says about suffering and it's true if God steps into the argument and weighs in it's always right but the second reality is this the one who is speaking to us right now knows what it is to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ you don't have to get very far into the New Testament to find out how much Paul himself the apostle suffered for Jesus Christ and time does not permit us to go through the lists of what he suffered. If you want to look them up on your own, I mean, just go and read 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5, or, or 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 28, and you'll find out that what Paul lists on his missionary journeys is astounding. 
The afflictions, the hardships, the calamities, the beatings, the imprisonments, the riots, the labors, the sleepless nights, the hunger. I mean, he, he looks at this, by the way, as a badge of honor, so to speak, or a badge to identify him as a true apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, you want, you want, to, you want, to, want to know that I'm a true apostle? Look what I have gone through for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to hear this. Paul is not the supreme case study of what it means to be a Christian and to follow this pathway of suffering to glory. He is secondary. The supreme case study is none other than Jesus Christ. And if you go back and read 1 Peter 1, 12 through 14, or you go and read Luke 24, what we see is this, that what's highlighted is that the, the Messiah, the promised deliverer of God's people, he must first come and suffer before he enters into his glory. And Peter in 1 Peter picks up on this reality and says, listen, do not expect it to be any different for you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Suffering in glory is always the pathway for God's children. Jesus' path was a path of suffering on this earth. And that doesn't mean there weren't aspects of delight and joy. Of course there was. It's not that, that, that life is all doom and gloom. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, though, the reality of what it means to truly follow Jesus. And when you look at Jesus, remember that it was prophesied of him that he would be pierced for our transgressions. That he must be crushed for our iniquities. That upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and that with his wounds we are healed. And we follow in our Savior's footsteps. We are in Christ. We, we suffer with him. We suffer for him. And listen, loved ones, hopefully we learn to suffer like him. We learn to endure suffering and to not trust in the hopes and the things and the comforts of this world as appealing as they may be. We learn to put our hope and trust in him. Suffering is the necessary outcome of conversion. See, why, why does it have to be this way? Well, there is a purpose for suffering in the Christian life. Trials, I love this, J.C. Ryle says this, I'll put the quote on the screen for you. It's so succinct and clear. He says this, trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. And let, let me just hasten to add this, all trials are intended to make us look more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the way he does it, by doing these things through trials. He makes us think about what's important in life. Makes us think about how we're living our lives. Makes us think about the, the shortness or the frailty of life. Like Psalm 90, it teaches us, trials do, don't they? To number our days. That's why it's better to go into a house of mourning than it is to go into a house of laughter. It teaches us, listen, to maximize the, the precious time we have on this earth for the glory of God and the good of others, especially who do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Trials have a way of weaning us from this world, of making us listen. And, and you know, if you ever suffer deeply, physical, mental health, or, or any kind of emotional health, you know this, that you can get to a place where there is nothing in this world that can satisfy, nothing that can strip away the pain that you're feeling. You have only one hope, and that is God himself. That's what trials do. They, they just show us, listen, how worthless the things of the world are to provide what we desperately need in our souls. They can't satisfy. They can't meet those, those deep heart needs. They prove empty over and over again. They send us back to the word of God. They drive us back to gaze, listen, upon the face and the glory of God through the pages of Scripture. They teach us what is right and true, and they drive us to our knees in humble dependence upon God, and all of this begins to fashion us into the image of Jesus Christ. It produces, listen, a sanctification. It's a crucible of sanctification. It is an expedited way of producing sanctification that could happen, listen, no other way but through the refinement that suffering brings. There are multiple purposes in our suffering. But sanctification is right at the top of the list. This is why James 1 says to consider it or count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing else. This is why in Romans chapter 5, Paul has addressed this issue as well, telling us, listen, that not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. Don't you see that one of the things trials and suffering do, it actually allows the Spirit of God to work in your life and to anchor you in the only hope that you can have for eternity. This is the Spirit's working. Giving you through your suffering, listen, a gospel security that is deeply rooted. In 1 Peter 5, 9 and 10, let me show you this one on the screen. Peter talks about our enemy, the devil, he says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same, listen to this, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is normal for the Christian. This is normal. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering is an integral part of the process of spiritual maturity. And Peter assumes that every true believer will undergo some degree of suffering for the Lord's sake. Let, let me just say this. If you're an unbeliever today, and if you are considering Christianity, let me just make this very clear. It will definitely make your life worse. I don't know what you've been told or what you've heard. I don't know what you may believe. You may be looking to Christianity as a fix-all for, for all of your earthly problems and all of your earthly pains and sufferings. I can promise you, if you come to Jesus, um, the suffering and the, the trials may actually get worse. Now, it will get better. Your, your life will be radically better. 
because what will be removed from your life is the power and presence of sin. What will be removed from your life is the emptiness of the things of this world, the things that you formerly placed your hope in. And what will be removed from you is the stain and curse of sin, and you will be given freedom and joy and everlasting life in Christ Jesus. And that is so much better. Listen, that is so much better than any temporary sufferings you may face for following Jesus. If you are suffering as a Christian today, can I just encourage you, you are actually living the normal Christian life. And you're actually living the only Christian life. The the king's child suffered. He, He suffered more than we can possibly fathom, and you are in the king's child. You'll suffer with him, you'll suffer like him and you'll suffer for him you cannot enter the promised land without going through the wilderness and the very road that Christ went down is the road his followers must go down third and finally suffering and glory listen are inconceivable by comparison and if your mind just went to the princess bride i apologize and if it went there now because i just said that then i apologize a second time But it was hard to kind of find a word that captured how radically, vastly different these two things are when they're placed side by side. In fact, there's a sense in which we're not supposed to be comparing. They can't be compared. You can only look at them in contrast to one another. That's how different they are. It's inconceivable to think of them as being anything close to one another. It's incomprehensible. It's black and white. The the difference is that stark. It's that drastic, and it's that radical. You see, when present suffering and eternal glory are placed, if you will, in the balancing scales, present suffering flies up under the weight of eternal glory as if it had no weight at all. It's like bricks of gold weighing down a tiny little feather. It's almost non-existent. The sum total of suffering that you can, listen, you need to hear this, loved one. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how painful your life is. But listen, the sum total of all the suffering you can experience in this present life is insignificant in comparison to the glory that will one day be revealed. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, I love that, don't you love that? This present time, it's just this present time. It's like Peter, it's only for a little while. They're not worth comparing. with The glory that's going to be revealed to us, if you're in Christ today, listen, what awaits you is so staggering, it's so mind-blowing that the moment you see it, listen, all other cares and suffering that you've experienced in this world, no matter how hard and painful they are, they are going to evaporate like they never existed. See, how can Paul be so sure Well, remember how I told you how Paul could relate to our our experience of suffering because he had gone through it? Well, well, can I remind you that that Paul also was the one who wrote in in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that he was was caught up to the third heavens. He was caught up to paradise. That Paul himself, he saw and he heard things that he was not allowed to come back and speak about. They were that incredible, that glorious. 
And they would have provoked so much pride in his, his heart because of what he was able to see and hear that God actually gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from boasting, to keep him humble. He was there. And so when he writes these words to us, you have to believe that Paul, in his mind, he's, he's, he's holding himself back. He's holding himself back from telling you how, how incredible it's going to be. He, he's not allowed to tell you because if you saw it, if you heard of it, it, it would make you so proud. It would make you so boastful. And it would make you not want to be here any moment longer than you have to be. You see, Paul could suffer the way he did in his life, listen, because he knew what awaited him. He knew the glory of what was ahead, at least in part. He had a taste of it. That's why he could say in in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For this, listen, light, momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. It's just light. You know, your, your trials are ultimately leading you to being fully resurrected and fully recreated, fully transformed. You, you are going to see, if you're in Christ, listen, you're going to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when you get there, it's not even going to be worth comparing to the worst of trials, to anything that you've ever experienced. And I know what we do in this life. You know, we look at our trials and to try to, to try to, minimize the pain in our lives, one of the things we do is we try to, we, we compare with others and we say, we say things like this, you know, I know other people have it worse. And I get that, that helps to kind of put things in perspective. But can I just suggest to you that we need to actually go in the other direction according to this text? We are going to have it so good. That's what we need to be thinking about. We're going to have it so good. Our eyes are going to be so filled with glory. We will look back and will not be able to comprehend the suffering that we experience here and now. That one day, it's coming and it's going to be awesome. That's where our heart needs to be. We need to set our mind on things above. We need to be so heavenly minded, listen, that we suffer so well here and now for Jesus. Your suffering is making you like Christ and it's reminding you, listen, that you will one day get the fullness of Christ. But that doesn't really matter, listen, if you don't love Jesus, does it? It doesn't exactly heal the wound. So let me just say that the first ingredient in appreciating the the Christian mercies in the midst of suffering is to actually be a Christian. To see that Christ is, is the most satisfying thing for your soul. There's nothing that can compare. That he, he is, listen, bread for your soul. He is the true wine for your soul. He is water for your soul. Nothing else compares to him. But Christians, listen, are hearing this. There are, there are some of you, you're hearing this, and you're, you're going through hell on earth right now. You're suffering, and you're in so much pain and inner turmoil. And in hearing this makes you angry. Because you you don't feel love for Jesus. And by the way, that that happens in the Christian life. That even as legitimate Christians, we can get to a place where we don't feel the love for Jesus. We get frustrated and angry and bitter. 
And that happens, you know, when we have our heart set on, on something else other than Jesus. This is often how it works. Listen, you could, you could be saying right now, you know, you're, you're suffering and you're asking God, God, do you really love me? Like, God, why don't I have a child? You know, that's where you're suffering. Why, why don't I have a child or why don't I have a spouse? And then you get those things and that's your problem now. And, and why don't I have the career that I wanted? Why don't I have the financial stability that I, I, I thought I deserved Why don't I have the profession or the lifestyle or the, the ministry pursuit or position? And it just keeps letting you down over and over again. And if that's, listen, if that's you, then Jesus won't comfort you. Listen, if that's where your hope is, if it's in anything else, Jesus won't be a comfort to your weary soul because he may never make any of those things happen in your life. He may never give you what you want out of this life. And those good things that, that you want can easily become an idol in your life. And, and I could talk about Jesus to the cows come home Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, every night of the week, every waking moment of your life. I could preach the gospel to you. I could tell you about Jesus, and it would never comfort your soul. And some of you are like, that's me. That's where I've been living. I want something so bad and God isn't giving it to me and I just don't want any more of God. And to you, I would simply say there's no way forward for you apart from repentance, apart from a humble recognition that Jesus is what you need. But all those other things, listen, as good as they may be, they are not what you need. You need Jesus. Repent. Turn back to him. Hear, hear Paul's words, for I consider these present sufferings. That word consider, it means, it means that I think about it. I take my thoughts captive. I, I, I listen. Listen, we, we need to tear out, listen, we need to tear out distracting thoughts to let heaven have its sanctifying effect on our sufferings. We need to, to meditate on it, to chew on it like a cow chews cud until we extract every single sanctifying nutrient. If we can't be comforted by Jesus, we have a big problem. And I'd encourage you to, to begin, if that's you, begin a process of fasting and praying to refocus and consider that, listen, the present sufferings this side of heaven are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed, but those glories are also found, listen, in part here and now in Jesus Christ. And suffering, though it exists now, listen, this is the hope of this passage. Suffering, though it exists now, it will not have the final word. Glory will. It's only for a little while if, provided that, you are in Christ. Christ suffered. Christ dealt, listen, with the very source of all suffering and pain at the cross. He put sin to death. He put death to death. And we know that suffering will last but for a moment. Hang on, Christian. Your Savior is coming. And when he returns in glory, this present suffering will fade away into eternal joy where you will exalt and magnify Christ forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray. We pray, Father, that you would 
God, allow the gospel to minister right now to our hearts. Lord, the reminder that you have dealt with our great enemy, that you have dealt with the source of all suffering, that, Lord, you have dealt with sin in the fullest sense, that Jesus, our Savior, you were nailed to the cross, that you paid the ultimate price. You suffered more than we can fathom. You suffered as you hung on that cross, not just physical distress and torment. You suffered spiritually. You suffered the wrath of God unleashed, that the wrath that we deserved. But you did not stay in the grave. You you did not remain there. Death could not defeat you. You rose three days later victorious from the grave, conquering sin and death. You have been exalted to the right hand of the Father where you now rule and reign. You give us, Lord, the picture, the perfect picture of the path of suffering and the ultimate destination of glory. Help us, Lord, to expect no different in this life. Help us, Lord, to embrace the suffering that we're facing, to let it have its sanctifying effect on our lives. Spirit of God, I pray that you would allow our suffering to be a means by which you testify to our hearts, even today, that we are your children, that we are heirs, because we have Christ Jesus. We pray that you would make it our soul's delight, both here and now and into eternity to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. In everything we do, would you receive glory and honor and praise. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus.